The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to see all of you on my uh, screen and to have a chance to share this time with you. I wanted to talk a little about an issue uh, that's been uh, comes up every once in a while in Dokusan, uh, and. Uh, uh, I get this from people uh, who are, you know, trying to decide whether to be Shikantaza or Koan students. And I get the uh, comment every once in a while, well, I, I don't really want to do Koan study because I, I don't see what Koans have to do with my life. And uh, you know, I think that's fair in a way uh, because uh, the koans concern uh, uh, Asian men who are long dead, usually, uh, who uh, lived in a very different world, at least seemingly, uh, than the world we live in, and reading accounts of their doings and sayings and working on them. Uh, Really, what uh, what does that have to do with my life here in the 21st century? And and my response uh, to that usually is, well, you know, shikantaza is a great practice. Koan study is a great practice, uh, but no matter which of these practices you choose, you're gonna spend your life working on koans. Uh, and indeed, uh, uh, you've spent your entire life working on koans, whether you like, you know, whether you are aware of it or not. Uh, basically, uh, uh, long before there was koan, formal koan study, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha uh, worked uh, very earnestly on the koans that we all face. Uh, he became aware, even though he led a very privileged life, uh, he became aware of sickness old age and death. Uh, these were completely inevitable. Uh, there was no going around them, figuring them out, uh, avoiding them. They came to the privileged and the underprivileged alike, inevitably. Well, those were his koans. He didn't know what to make of it. Uh, the fact of sickness, old age, and death seemed to render the very pleasant life he lived as a young man 
in his father's palace to be completely silly and meaningless. Uh, how could there be any meaning when it was all going to come crashing down in relatively few years? This was the koan that brought him uh, to his search that caused him to practice so earnestly. And uh, as we know, after a time, uh, six years or so, uh, he had his great realization. And uh, one of his first teachings was the Four Noble Truths, which also superficially seemed to have nothing to do uh, with koan study. And yet, uh, they're nothing but a koan. So his first noble truth was life is dukkha, uh, sometimes translated as life is suffering. Uh, uh, life is unsatisfactory. Life doesn't go the way we think it should go. The world doesn't behave the way we want it to behave. Life is dukkha. Dukkha is actually the koan that all of us face. Uh, in his case, as a young man, he faced it in a very extreme form. I don't want to grow old. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to die. And yet I'm going to. What do I do with that? And he said the cause of uh, suffering, the reason we all face this koan is because we have these egos. Uh, uh, we create a separate self and then we create a project of grasping after the stuff that this self finds pleasant and pushing away the stuff that it finds unpleasant. So we're constantly in a state of trying to avoid the inevitable, trying to wish it away, trying the, la the latest new age uh, nostrum that'll make it go away and make everything fine, or maybe uh, have a big enlightenment experience at a session which will put us in a frame of mind where nothing bothers us ever again. We look for the way out. We look for the cure and there is no cure. There is no cure for the fundamental fact that life feels uncomfortable and unsatisfactory to our ego and that we want it to be something different than it is. And then uh, Shakyamuni said, well, there is a way uh, out of this predicament. And he said, 
the way out of this predicament is the Eightfold Path. Uh, the Eightfold Path, broadly speaking, we can say uh, is to practice our lives rather than trying to fine tune and adjust them so that they're completely gratifying to our ego. So uh, he said the Eightfold Path has he set it out formally was a right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. And actually, uh, in my opinion, right samadhi encompasses all of those. Uh, samadhi means absorption. Uh, so when we get uh, out of trying to fine tune our lives, when we're not so grabby and not so afraid and anxious that we're constantly trying to push away what is our undeniable experience, slowly we become aware that the first noble truth is not separate from right samadhi. Life is suffering. Life is unsatisfactory. Can be ex an expression of delusion and pain or an expression of samadhi, satori, anuttara, samyak, sambodhi. And the way we perceive it depends a lot on whether we're willing to practice to be absorbed in the truth of our life, to be one with our life just as it is, rather than doing this absurd dance of trying to make everything satisfying and perfect and lovely uh, and trying to keep all the bad stuff out, you know, keep all those wars out, keep all that sickness out, keep all that injustice out. No. No, samadhi is this world that we live in just as it is, no matter what our opinion of the moment about it is, here it is. So there were these three old uh, masters who had just completed a summer retreat and uh, the senior one was a Yen, and he said uh, to the other two uh, my dharma brothers i've been uh, lecturing to you all through the summer tell me 
Do I still have my eyebrows or not? So, all right, first uh, puzzle is what does he mean by do I have my eyebrows or not? Well, uh, Zen masters, uh, uh, you, you know, can't per really present the whole truth. So they have to present partial truths skillfully to their students. So uh, to be a Zen teacher supposedly is to lower yourself in a way uh, from the realm of truth. And if you lower yourself too much out of compassion, your eyebrows fall off. That's, uh, that's the meaning behind the saying. But eyebrows are very interesting. Eyebrows uh, are also part of a whole metaphoric system in Zen. Stuff that grows and is fuzzy and kind of messy, uh, uh, that represents uh, the phenomenal world, the world of dukkha that we're all uh, familiar with. So, uh, when a, a Zen teacher lowers himself too far and the eyebrows fall off and there's just this smooth forehead, that can't really be a presentation of the truth. That can't ultimately be helpful to students. Anyway, so we asked his... Uh, three friends, whether uh, his eyebrows were still there or not after all these lectures he'd been giving. And the first one, Pao Fu said, a thief's heart is cowardly. Uh, Zen masters uh, are often referred to as thieves because ultimately they're going to take away from you, all your many, many absurd attempts to escape from the reality of dukkha. Whether you try to escape uh, by believing something that's nice to believe, or, well, then he'll take that belief away from you. Uh, if you think that you're supposed to get into a really nice state of mind in zazen, and if you're not in a really nice, peaceful state of mind during zazen, then you're doing zazen wrong. He'll take away from you the notion that zazen is about anything in particular, about anything different than you're experiencing during zazen. So Zen teachers are constantly taking things away. They're thieves. And so Pao Fu said, the thieves' heart is cowardly. Oh, ye, ye, ye. What are you asking us this for? You, ye, you've been doing nothing but, uh, uh, you know, stealing stuff from us through this whole retreat. And, and now you're asking whether your eyebrows are still there. The next uh, 
Master Chang Ching said, they've grown. So far from uh, your eyebrows falling off and making everything nice and smooth, you've been creating more complications. You've been making things steadily worse. You've been putting more and more things in their way, more and more hoops for us to jump through, demanding that we let go of more and more of our darlings. Your eyebrows have grown, old man. And then the third master said, Master Yunman said, a barrier, a barrier. The eyebrows are always there, whether they're the eyebrows of a Zen uh, master, a Zen teacher, or simply the barrier that we confront every minute of our life, the barrier of suffering, or if we're not suffering at the moment, uh, the suffering that comes with trying to cling to a beautiful moment and see it slipping away. I feel a little uh, pain looking out the window and seeing the wind and the sprinkling rain and so on. And just a day or two ago, it was so beautiful. The birds were singing. Where did that go? I feel this very strongly in spring because we're constantly being given perfect weather and just as rapidly having it taken away from us. Barrier. Uh, my first teacher, uh, Daido Roshi, uh, used to say the way through any barrier is to become the barrier, to be one with the barrier. Uh, so uh, if someone is doing formal cuts, koan study, and they start with the koan mu, uh, what is Mu? The way through is to be with Mu until there's no separation between yourself and Mu. Till it's, uh, you sit with it until it's a red hot iron ball stuck in your throat that you can't swallow and that you can't spit out. Doesn't that sound great? And yet, there's no way around this. You don't have to work on Mu or any formal koan. You're still gonna be confronting sickness, old age and death just like Shakyamuni did. You're still going to lose the people you love or they're going to lose you. 
eventually you're going to lose your health. If you've done uh, well in the world, one day you'll die and lose everything you've accumulated. There's no avoiding koans. Uh, formal koan study is sort of uh, a safe way to work on koans. But there's no safety anywhere, really. We all live in this world of dukkha. And we all have to find, just like Shakyamuni did, we have to find our way with our suffering, through our suffering. It's a tough job. It's an unrelenting job. It's a job that comes up for us every day of our life. And yet it can be a very rewarding job. Because our barriers are suffering. A barrier is something that's uh, blocking the passageway from one space into another. When we become the barrier, instead of resisting it, when we realize ourself as the barrier, all of a sudden, we're less likely to stick in one place. We're ready, more likely to see where wisdom and compassion are telling us where we need to go. The next thing, uh, just a simple example is, you know, I've given a lot of Dharma talks and there's always usually a period at least of sitting before the Dharma talk. And every time I've had a period of sitting before the Dharma talk, I've been nervous about the Dharma talk. The nervousness is the barrier. I have to sit with it. I have to be one with it. I have to feel those butterflies. Whatever talk I then give comes out of that fear, that nervousness. It evolves naturally. Because things change. So the nervousness opens. It opens into the gatha on opening the sutra. And the gatha on opening the sutra opens into a dharma talk. And the dharma talk opens into the four vows. And so on and so on and so on. Opening and opening and opening. This process of opening 
of changing from moment to moment, this impermanence of things is the source of wisdom and compassion. And it's our desperate clutching to stay where we are. No, no, I don't want to give the Dharma talk. I don't know what I'm going to say. No, no, I don't want to get old. No. Become one with the barrier. The barrier becomes a gateway. A gateway to what? Well, that's the thing. That's what we don't like. We don't know. We just commit ourselves to not sticking and taking the next step and then the next one. We trust in the opening of the Dharma, even though we don't know what that is. Because to trust in the opening of the Dharma is to trust in ourselves. And that old master Yunmen who uh, set a barrier, he also said, medicine and sickness subdue each other. The whole world is medicine. What is the self? Medicine and sickness subdue each other. The whole world is medicine, including all the suffering, all the agony, the minor frustrations, the major tragedies, all of it, the whole world is medicine. It's medicine that kills us as we lose the world moment by moment. And it's medicine that brings us to life again into a new moment, a new life, a new world. So, what do koans have to do with our life? The koan is life itself. And our willingness to be the koan, to be absorbed in our life. That's true freedom. That allows us to be wise and compassionate with others, with ourselves, and with the whole world. <laughs>